a glass of wine through a tiny door, an ingenious way to transport wine bottles, and nuns sleeping in the airport. This week, we're in Florence for the wine doors. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel to a different place to sample the dishes and drinks that make it unique. And this week, we're checking out the wine doors of Florence. Wine doors are little openings in the sides of buildings in Florence where, in Renaissance times, wine was served to customers standing outside. And these wine doors have become incredibly popular on social media since the start of the pandemic because they're a way to socially distance and still get a nice glass of wine. My guest is wine door expert Robin Giesling. Robin has published a book of photography and had art exhibits of her work on wine doors. And Robin is back in Florence right now working on another wine door project. I talked to her about how she got interested in the wine doors and the fascinating history of the design features in the city. Robin also tells me about Renaissance union busting and why those Chianti bottles had straw baskets on them. And Robin debunks the myth that wine doors were built as a way to socially distance during the plague hundreds of years ago. If you want to know more about Robin and her work, go to robingiesling.com. I've got a link in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED154. And remember, if you like Destination Eat Drink, give us a five-star review on your podcast platform. Much appreciated. Destination Eat Drink. I think to get started... Let's kind of define what exactly are wine doors and how did they come about originally? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. The uh, So the wine doors of Florence were kind of uh, a method of the noble families being able to sell their wine directly to the public after the guilds of Florence were um, dissolved by the Medici family. So we're talking about 1500s here is when Cosimo Primo de' Medici uh, was kind of pressured by the, the rich people to uh, not have to sell to middlemen anymore. And so his solution was, okay, we decree that you can sell to the public. And then it took oh, probably 100 years or so for these uh, little wine doors to evolve into a method of selling directly from the noble family's houses. So this is kind of a direct-to-consumer model <laughs> that we would know Correct. today. I, I did not know that the uh, guilds were uh, were evaporated by the Medici family in the 1500s. Is this kind of a form of union busting? What was going on here? That, that's exactly how I explain them. Is yeah, you can think of them as like a modern union, and they were all uh, there was a separate guild for each kind of. Uh, artistry and uh, industry, if you will. So there was a silk guild, a wool guild, uh, an iron workers guild, a, and a winemakers guild. And they were all kind of very uh, familial in their uh, membership. Like you had to show ties to family and in history uh, to get to be able to be a member. And some of these more noble families that had either a, a broader scope to their uh, family production that were like, hey, we can't get into these guilds 
that we have product for uh, without having to pay them, without having to uh, take a cut and, and all of these things? How can we make more money? Senior Medici, how how can we help us make more money? And so uh, he, they all, the guilds were dissolved. So this was because people were trying to break into the industry and slam the doors are shut. I can't get in. I can't be a winemaker. I can't be a butcher. I can't be a silk maker because these guilds are completely shut off to me for access. Medici's, let's get rid of these, and it's going to be wide open. That's fascinating. I had no idea that was going on in uh, Renaissance Florence. So these wine doors open up so that folks can sell their wine directly to consumers. Describe what these wine doors look like for people who can't see them right now as we're talking. Sure. So uh, for for the older set, uh, you probably recall the the straw-covered wine bottle that was from Italy that, you know, in the 70s, you'd stick your candle in and the put on the bottles, table. The Chianti bottles, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So th- those are actually historic Chianti bottles. Though That was part of uh, the way things were done because that shape and that uh, straw had a very specific purpose. Like if you can uh, Google the, uh, just Google the uh, Florentine fiasco, just like we use the word as, oh, that's a great fiasco. The, the, ta- the, the word in Italian is fiasco, spelled exactly the same way. And the, so that's what the bottle is called. And that shape meant that like if you stacked four together on their bottoms, you could flip one fiasco over and put it on top. And the straw acted as um, Renaissance bubble wrap, if you will. So it protected <laughs> them from breaking. And then they could, uh, oh, there, that's the word. It's the, the caromato, C-A-R-R-O. M-A-T-T-O, the Caromato, and you could see hundreds of these fiaschi bottles stacked up, and that's how the Chianti was transported. So if they've done this production in the countryside and they've put it all in the fiasco, the little door is no taller than a fiasco bottle and is just about as wide as a fiasco bottle. So it's flat on the bottom and then just a little round door, like so any other like big building door you would see in Florence is round on the top. It's not, not two squares usually. It's usually round. And so you they would have these little wooden doors that you would knock on. They would open the little door. There would be just enough space to take your money and to push that little bottle through. <laughs> Ingenious, right? I, I love yeah. the idea that this, this straw was used to transport the bottles. I didn't think it had a use. I just thought it was charming looking and, uh, you know, would be something fun to stick on the table. But they had a purpose. Of course, they had a purpose. So these wine doors are being used. Folks are um, folks are getting their wine that way. The story that I heard was that it was kind of an early way of um, to create social distancing. In other words, if there was a plague going around, you would do this in order not for two people to come in close contact. Is there any truth to that story that I heard? I think since the, kind of what made these things, I'll say, break and become popular during COVID was that uh, there was one source found where someone was had written an entire book of uh, about all of the various plagues. And I've 
been sent all the articles and I've read all the articles and it's been kind of a, a journalistic game of telephone of watching <laughs> the facts morph and change. Um, so a lot of people in some of these articles have talked about the plague. And so the plague, when we think of the plague, that's 1300. That's too early. 200 years earlier. Right. And then so there was a second round of plague uh, about this time. But they and so some of these articles say they were created for the plague, but that's not true. They were already in existence when this second round of plague came through and it was just conveniently used at that time. They're like, oh, hey, great, this is perfect. We don't have to see anyone that may be sick, but still, you know, wine was you know, much like beer in Germany. Wine was still cleaner drinking than the water. You were healthier drinking the wine than whatever might be in the water. So wine was still very much a, a needed product and not a luxury product uh, at that time. So yes, they were taking their little door and they were, they were putting their money in the scoop uh, and then taking their scoop back out and washing their scoop with vinegar to uh, avoid any contagion that they might have. So it was actually also pretty fascinating that they had an understanding of how contagion was passed without really even understanding what uh, germs were. You brought up an interesting point, Robin, the fact that the water really wasn't safe to drink. So folks would drink wine in Italy, at least, would drink wine instead. And I read somewhere that people would drink up to a liter of wine a day. And I'm like, what a wine paradise that must have been. <laughs> That's true. But we also have to think about that water, modern winemaking has increased the alcohol content significantly of what they were drinking then. They were literally just crushing grapes, like how wine was, say, invented was the Greeks had put a bunch of grapes in a terracotta pot, put a lid on it, and then those natural yeasts that were on the skins started the fermentation process. So when they took the lid off and got their grapes out and they just had this juice in the bottom, they're like, oh, hey, I got a little buzz. <laughs> but that might have been half the alcohol content that we have now with modern winemaking. So drinking a liter then is, is probably not as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> so, so we're talking not 12 to 14 percent, maybe 6 to 7 percent. Maybe a strong yeah. uh, equivalent to like a strong beer. Um, yeah. So, okay. So th this is going on during the Renaissance. You've got all these wine doors. Folks are selling wine directly from the makers to the consumers. When did they fall into disuse? There was actually quite a few used. And that's part of the what I'm going back to research is kind of like we still don't know when the first one was cut. We don't know which building had the very first one, uh, as well as just their decline was even as recent as the early 1900s. Uh, so I think it wasn't even until World War I that they probably were stopped being used and just got walled up. So 400 years they were using these wine doors. I remember when I first visited Florence, I, I didn't really know about these things, but I remember seeing them and I thought they kind of almost look like a nave that you would see in a church because a lot of them will have like a picture of Mary or something in them. They, they, some of them have taken on a religious overtone, but I didn't think anything of them. I just thought it was just another religious icon in Florence. Um, and then the pandemic comes and these wine, uh, wine doors start coming back into use. Is that, is that how they started uh, using wine doors again or was it before the pandemic? There was one restaurant uh, that started to use theirs again uh, before the pandemic. Now, there's also uh, Vivoli Gelateria in, uh, in Florence, just very famous gelateria. 
excellent gelato, by the way, if, if you're <laughs> ever there. Uh, theirs was always open. And um, like I say, I started photographing in about 2013. And then um, there's a preservation association that started about two years later. But theirs was always open. So when I found the one book that I could find on these from the library in Florence, and I went there and I, I said, you, do you know what these are? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we we know what it is. But theirs was hidden until the great flood of 66. Oh. Theirs had been com completely walled up. So it was kind of half and half. Many were destroyed in the great flood and many were uh, kind of refound in the flood. They said, yeah, it was completely plastered over. And then when the flood had gone way above uh, their little door, when they're having to restructure their walls, they found this little hole. And so they restored it. Now they did not serve out of it at all. They literally just had a plant stuck in it. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. And it wasn't even a real plant. It was a plastic plant. And um, so theirs was always open. And then when I started doing my first round of photography of them, I could see where some had access on the other side, but were just completely ignored and disused. And then, so by the time Babay, the restaurant that has theirs now uh, came about, uh, I had already photographed it. And when I photographed it, there was no restaurant there. It was completely empty and abandoned. And uh, so when I heard that they were uh, serving out of it, I was fascinated and thrilled. And then with the pandemic, uh, obviously, uh, the, the way the restrictions were in, in Italy, you couldn't even, you could barely be on the street, much less uh, go into a restaurant. So those that had one readily available started using them again, like Vivoli started serving Thank goodness they were serving their cases of gelato out this little door, so they nobody have to come in. Right. Uh, then a couple other restaurants have uh, that were walled up on my last photography tour uh, have dug them out and restored them for service. So they're called wine doors, but they're serving gelato through them. What other kinds of things are they serving through? Because that's that's how, I can't imagine anything more delightful than getting a cone of gelato through a wine door. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden a hand <laughs> pops out and there's your uh, pistachio and whatever. Um, what else? What else can we get through a wine door besides just wine? Well, even historically speaking, they weren't used just for wine. So, you know, as these noble families were producing more than wine, if they had some fruits and vegetables, anything they, they produced agriculturally, they would sell through these doors. But it was mostly wine because of the fiasco shape. But now, like I know, uh, Babe will try to serve uh, their aperitivo on tiny plates through. And then another restaurant in uh, the Sant'Ambrogio neighborhood, they have... Uh, put some of their uh, pizzette on a, a long board so they can just oh, cool. squeeze the long board right out <laughs> and get your little salumi and stuff and the little, and little pizzette and it just they kind of like okay let's just use these long paddles to just shove this right out the door and it, it's really quite quite fun oh that is just adorable i just love that you're a photographer by trade how did you get interested specifically in the wine doors did you just start seeing them and wonder what the heck are these? Or was there some other thing that went off in your brain that said, I want to learn all about these? I have a, a long evolution as well. So I <laughs> actually was a, a music engineer for 15 years. I was, uh, I was a band geek in high school, uh, then uh, went into the music business for a long time. And then in New York, as I was finishing up at NYU, I was kind of over it <laughs> already. <laughs> right. I was like, 15 years is plenty. Uh, that. I, I didn't even really drink much wine until I moved to New York. I mean, New York is its own transformative experience. And um, and just from what I had learned in my super basic wine classes, I was like, okay, Italy sounds fascinating. 
And I started working at an Italian wine shop or an Italian restaurant. And then that evolved into being a, a WSET sommelier. And I was like, okay. And then New York being crazy as it is, I'm like, I, I just can't do floor service. This this is not for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, right. no, nope. And uh, it's like, okay, well, I was, but one of the things that always, I can always ground myself to or take myself back to a, a point in my own history of studying wine was so fascinating that I had one instructor who's an MW now who was like, trace region maps and write out your, um, your what your knowledge that you need to know for your exams and stuff. And it was like, so I just got this massive wanderlust tracing all these maps of the world, right? And I'm just like, okay, I, I know I can't, I'm not, I'm done with New York. Let's get out of here. And I started going back and forth to Italy and I've, you know, started doing France just for my studies. But then I've now been to 15 regions of Italy and I'm surprised I've not got them all conquered yet. But um, so that turned into sommelier, but I've always been a photographer through this whole thing. And uh, the opportunity came to actually now kind of push myself towards photography as a career. So that's only come about in the last five years and um, absolutely thrilled with it that I can t do all these photographs of all the places that I studied as a sommelier. And it it's been quite, quite great. I love it because going on your website, you really get transported to these different places. Tell me about a couple of your, you've talked about a few of, of your favorite wine doors, but tell me a couple more of your favorite wine doors that you've experienced while in Florence, whether they're actually in use or not in use or why they're your favorites. Well, there's one at uh, Il Latini restaurant, which is if anybody who's traveled to Florence, it's, it's in all the guidebooks. It's a, it's a very popular one, but it, it was kind of um, where the, the point of reference for me on this whole project began is because I was trying to create these lush travel inspiration, you know, Tashin quality photographs of oh, Florence. But I kept coming across uh, Ape scooter or Ape trucks <laughs> parked in front of my right. subjects, scooters parked in front of my subjects. My subject's been spray painted. My, there's people standing in front of it. Oh, look, it's the delivery day. I've got uh, milk and water crates in front of it. So I was like, okay, this is uh, back to my, my first and true love of photography is documentary and street photography. So I'm like, okay, this is no longer a romantic view of these. This is, if anybody's going to be able to use my work and, and find them, I've got to show reality. And so it was kind of like, so the one at Il Latini was, I've visited like eight times. A lot of people don't realize that travel photography takes a lot of planning. It's not that you're on some vacation and you squeeze the shutter and there you go. You, you've got to plan so much. Um, so I went to Il Latini like eight times and I was like, okay, I've got too many people. I got a car. I got this. All right. So I'm there at seven o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. There's the recycling dumpsters they've dragged out to the front. Right, There's right. the, yeah, all of these crates I was speaking of earlier. And I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the street photography project. So that one is always a favorite just in that changed my perspective of them, changed how I shoot them. So that's always one that sticks out. And then there's always just the ones that are full of texture. And, and like, there's one on um, Via del Giulio that's um, also one that just says Vendita Divino. And it's this gorgeous brick. It's totally disused, um, but also a very, I'll say, famous one. And that's where one of all the tour guides take people just because it's very obvious what it is. Because it's Vendita Divino and has, has its amazing frame. Uh, one to shoot that's quite well. And then, like I said, also the one at Vivaldi where I got to have the conversation with um, 
the nonna of the house when she's like, oh yeah, we dug that out in the sixties. So for me personally, I've got all of these stories behind individual ones of my own interactions with them that, that make it almost like, what's your favorite child? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. I remember our first trip to Florence and I love taking pictures and two of my favorite, speaking of street photography, two of my favorite pictures were, uh, one was a nun throwing out a bag of garbage into a dumpster. And I don't know why I found that picture fascinating, maybe just that it was so incongruous to what I thought she should be doing at that time. But I love that picture. And the other one is two cops sitting in their cop car drinking espresso from china cups cups and saucers you know <laughs> not and i i it, it struck me because it was my first visit to italy and i'm used to seeing cops drinking out of dunkin donuts cups these cops are drinking from real china in their cop car and i'm like these guys have it down <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, I have two very similar uh, experiences to that on a little side note was, uh, I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but at the Rome airport, the budget airlines like Ryanair and all that, they, their earliest flights are before public transit starts. Mm. So, so many people are sleeping in the Rome airport at night. And I thought I was going to be like the only one. I was going to be all spooky. Oh no. Hundreds of people crashed out the night before for their early, early morning flights. Well, one time I'm sitting there on a bench and I'm just stretched out and I'm like, okay. And I just, I don't know, something told me to turn around and there's a nun in full habit, full habit, like the the headdress and all of it, eating a salad with her feet up on a suitcase, spending the night in the Rome airport. And I'm like, I love that it. Wasn't expect, was not expecting that either. Did not expect but that then, here. <laughs> so then the, similarly with the coffee was, um, I saw, a, a server leaving the bar and taking a full tray of like six or eight cups and saucers to another building. She was doing takeaway for them and they just trust people to bring their cups back. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> of course you're going to bring it back because you know, you don't want to be ostracized the next time you go there. Like where the hell's my cup? Yeah. <laughs> like, Federico, where's my cup? Yeah. That reminds me, I was just in Washington, DC last week for a little bit of business. And this really doesn't have anything to do with Italy, but it does have to do with coffee. And I was sitting, there was nothing open. All the cool coffee shops that I wanted to go to were all closed. So I had to go to Starbucks and I'm sitting outside on the patio at Starbucks, sipping my um, espresso, waiting for my meeting to start. And a cop comes up and he has one of those trays, those cardboard trays, and he's got four Dunkin' Donuts cups of coffee in the tray and he walks into the Starbucks. And I was like, isn't this how the 30 years war started? (laughs) What is going to happen here? I I should have gone in to see, you know, to figure out why, what is the, what is the next thing that's going to happen? But I didn't, I sat there and sipped on my uh, espresso and went on my way. But I just thought, you know, talking about incongruous things that you see, that was, uh, that was one of my favorites. Um, Robin, when I was preparing for this conversation, I knew we were going to talk and it got me to thinking, you know, we're talking about the wine doors and it got to me to thinking, is there anything similar that we have in the United States? And I thought, well, the only thing that I can kind of track it to is drive through windows at fast food joints. Have you ever thought about the similarity between the two? I want to say I haven't. 
because um, I mean, almost to one extent, I would even think more to France is where you can walk up to a, a crepe window and <laughs> get a crepe. Yeah. Um, but amusingly, there's been a couple of restaurants in the United States that have replicated the wine doors. Now, now get this. Oh, cool. Somebody sent me a photograph. I'm not a Disney person. In Epcot, in the Italy section, there's a wine door. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And it's apparently been there a while. I'm like, somebody did their research. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right. It's like, what? Uh, but in terms of like, yeah, self-service to that extent, uh, I mean, like, see, I've, I've even been to like beer gardens where they just had a window. But yeah, nothing, nothing that to that extent. I think the other thing that strikes me as kind of similar is when you've got like cloistered nuns who sell baked goods. And you see this in Italy. I remember when we were in Madrid, there was a place where you go and they have a revolving door type Lazy Susan thing. And you ring the bell, you put your money in, you turn the door, and then they turn it back. They take the money in and leave like a, a bag of cookies or something for you. Uh, do you know what those were, were originally used for, though? No, tell me. When you didn't uh, want your child and you oh, needed to give it up. those were the baby doors. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's a very interesting reuse of those, though. I was like, hmm. <laughs> the, I, I, I got to say, the cookies are a lot happier than that. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, yeah, because there, there is, a, like, one of those revolving windows at um, the Innocenti in Florence, but I can't say that they've bothered putting any baked goods through it. That's a fabulous idea. Yeah, it's some you know I've seen them in Sicily and I've seen them in uh like I said in Madrid and I think there's some in France. Well, there you go. This might be your uh this might be your next photography book, uh, Robin. <laughs> the evolution of the baby to the pastry. <laughs> it has a happy ending. Um so what's your plans for Italy? You're in the United States as I'm talking to you right now, but uh what have you got on the agenda? Uh where are you headed to and what's your plan? Well, fortunately everything's uh, loosened up a bit. Uh, everybody's getting vaccinated, masked up. That um, Americans are finally able to enter Italy. Uh, I had my exhibition in November of 2019 and had uh, intended on on continuing the work in 2020. And right as I was geared up to um, do a, a sommelier tour of Piedmont and then go back down to Florence, uh, the door slammed shut. So I've not been back since November of 2019. Uh, from today of this recording, we are, I'm expected, I'm expected, I am headed to Italy in 10 days, uh, where I will spend another year, uh, barring any other COVID crazy, uh, to get this research done. I mean, I think my primary objective is, uh, as even just researching for text is still no one knows who cut the first one. I was like, if I can find that, I will feel like, a like a scholarly god. I will be like, uh, like, oh, I found it. Um, this is totally the like, holy grail of wine doors. <laughs> that, that's the word I was looking for. I was, I was like, I need my holy grail. I need my my cup. Um, but otherwise, I mean, a, an extremely lofty goal is, um, so there's about 150 inside the historic wall. Uh, so if we go all the way from the north to the south, and I would love to have 150 to 200 words on each one that that's a lot to try to accomplish in nine months uh i do have a research grant uh for it but you know it's like i might have to time it it's like well i'm uh the, the grant is finished so i have to leave and this is what i've got but uh if i can figure out like there's some that we don't like the the, the family name is gone from the building we don't even really know who owns it so that's even in itself going to be like digging into 
architecture archives. And then, believe it or not, there's um, this was way past Medici, but there's a agricultural archive in Tuscany that like has all of these maps. And it's like something I'm very curious about uh, just from a wine production standpoint is, as, as we were speaking, it's like, okay, what grapes were they growing then? What kind of wine were they serving then? Mm-hmm. And even just you know, like I say, just two two words. If somebody says they were growing uh, Sangiovese and Canaiolo, and that's okay, say more. I don't even care how many hectares they're having. I just like just enough to have you know, like dare I say, a Lonely Planet style blurb of each one, and then I want to map them, photograph them, make uh, routes of them. Uh, the next book is intended to be um, a guidebook. It is intended to uh, design the routes for you. So that you can just self-guide and um, hopefully some of my shop friends like uh, Vope Luva, uh, one of the best little wine bars in uh, Tuscany, excuse me, in Florence. Uh, they're well-placed on the map, if, if you will, because they're like all the guidebooks too, but to make sure that they get represented uh, in the book. So like you can see this wine door and read this blurb, and now you can stop here and have a glass and then you can go to Bed Bay and get one through an actual door. That is my intention with the next book is to really make sure people can discover them so they're not uh, hidden in plain sight. Well, these are lofty and admirable goals. Thank you. For this next project. I I can't wait to see it when it's completed. Um, Keep in touch with us. We'd love to have you on again to talk about this once you've got the next one going. Uh, Wine Doors of Florence uh, is available. We'll have a link for that down in the show notes. Robin, thanks for being on Destination Eat Drink today. It was just a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. Robin sure has it down when it comes to the wine doors. I can't wait to see her new project when it's done. Check out her photography work on her website, robingiesling.com. I've got a link in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED154. Next week, more fun in the big world. We're talking donuts with filmmaker Alice Gu, director of the Donut King film. Until then, get yourself over to DestinationEatDrink.com. In honor of St. Martin's Day, which was November 11th, I republished a story about being in Ljubljana, Slovenia for St. Martin's and learning about the traditions of the holiday in that country. You can read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and wine door designer Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 